Welcome to today's 4x4 virtual salon. The topic of today's discussion is embedded banking. And for this discussion, I'm joined by four esteemed practitioners of embedded banking. And just before I introduce you to the speakers, I just wanted to make sure everybody was familiar with the 4x4 format. So the reason we call it a 4x4 is because we have four speakers because we cover four different topics under the umbrella of embedded banking, because we have four polls, and because we're gonna take four of your questions. And the topics for today are on defining embedded banking, the mechanics of embedded banking, the business case for embedded banking, and what creates differentiation in this space. As I mentioned, we're gonna have a poll related to each of those topics, and we're gonna take one of your questions related to each of these topics. So I would invite you to please get involved, you know, to submit questions, to post comments, and to also take part in the poll. Right, so let me now introduce our speakers. So I'm gonna start with uh, Christine, who's in my, um, in my top left, right? So uh, Christine Schmidt, uh, so she's uh, a regular on these four by four virtual salons. She's head of strategy at Additive. Additive is based in Zurich in Switzerland, and it's focused on investment management. It has two business lines. It has software as a service, and banking as a service. And for the latter, it partners with a broad range of service partners, including regulated banks such as Saxo Bank, which brings me nicely, which is a nice segue to talk about to Mortensen, who is regional head of institutional business at Saxo Bank. Saxo Bank has been active in banking as service long before it was actually called banking as a service or and long before it was as, as fashionable as it is today. So since 2015, Saxo Bank has been providing its investment and trading services via APIs to companies that want to build products on top or want to embed those services into an existing offering. And it serves banks directly or financial institutions directly and also works with some intermediaries uh, such as additive to reach a broader audience. Next, we have Eric. Um, forgive me if I don't pronounce your surname correctly, Eric, but we have Eric Mouillon. Is that, is that good? <laughs> so, uh, the CEO and founder of Bankable. And again, Eric was early to this space. Eric's um, a bit of a visionary who saw early on how banking distribution was splitting from banking distribution, and he created Bankable back in 2010. And Bankable helps brands and financial institutions to bring innovative payment solutions to market quickly and easily or more quickly and easily than would be the case otherwise and one of its customers is card which um brings me to scott gordon who is ceo of french mobile banking app card which is focused on the team market and a core part of the offering is a prepaid payment card which allows parents to have some control and visibility over what their children are spending. And as I mentioned, um, Scott chose Bankable as its platform on which to build that, that card offering. So I'm gonna now move on to uh, the first topic, which is what is embedded banking? And I'm gonna start Eric with you by asking you that, you know, seemingly simple question, which is what is embedded banking? Okay, thank you, Ben, uh, for, the, for the intro. So I think I'll try to make it very simple. I think um, if you remember um, Matt Harris from Ben Capital, uh, they, they, what they said very simply that everybody understood 
is that the, the goal is uh, there's an opportunity to make uh, every company a fintech company. What that means is that, uh, in fact, uh, we're repackaging the, the, in fact, the bank uh, into relevant B2B or B2B2C or B2C solution uh, instead of a product. So it's a way to, in fact, uh, put uh, the, the, the bank uh, in, the, in the back end, basically, uh, with API. Uh, and we recreate or we co-work with the, the, the financial institution to, uh, to build things that are uh, innovative uh, and, uh, and real-time, basically. Uh, so, uh, I mean, embedded finance has been uh, around for quite some time, uh, especially in e-commerce. Um, I mean, our definition at, at Bankable is more, uh, you know, it's more, in fact, to uh, provide people with... Uh, uh, let's say, you know, there's different embedded finance for brands. What, what, what they're missing, they need to know their clients, right? They don't know their clients. It's the distributor know their clients. So an embedded finance solution could create a proximity uh, with the client so you can understand a bit more your clients and go direct. You know? so, uh, so that's for, for brands. Banks as well, they're quite keen to uh, endorse uh, embedded finance because uh, I think they are not as static as uh, the, the journalists uh, think. I think they are, some are definitely... Uh, uh, agile and, uh, and uh, you know, uh, retaliating. So for us, we have two categories of clients, the, the, the fintech uh, who are going to provide embedded solution to, to, uh, to corporates or others. And then there's the provider, the, 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 the banks, who are as well uh, not staying put for, for some of them. And, and they're using the tools of a fintech to go to market quickly and to, uh, in fact, address all these markets. So in fact, it's more a, a solution view of the world more than a product view of the world, uh, I would say. So, uh, in fact, to and, and to address the embedded finance uh, market, you need banking as a service. Yeah, to, uh, so that's the transition for my friend Scott. So, in fact, that's uh, that's how those, those two are linked. You know, clearly, you know, you can't go like that with a, a theory. I'm going to do embedded finance. You need tools. I need the the, the tools that are modern, uh, real time, and uh, that in fact put together an offer. Um, so it's it's more, in fact, uh, what you had in the past before embedded finance, you had the bank. Period. Yeah, there was. A, so you go to the bank. So you go to the branch. Um, so the, the the world has changed, and we can uh, work with multiple banks, multiple solution, uh, and in fact build sort of a bespoke solution. I don't like bespoke, but it's in fact customized more than bespoke because bespoke we can't scale. Uh, you do one suit at a time. Uh, so I think it's uh, it's all about customer, you know, experience. Uh, real-time customer experience, that's, that's the, where we are leading, basically, with uh, embedded finance. And I think the opportunity is uh, enormous uh, because, in fact, when you talk to a client who's got uh, one million clients, that's an opportunity to have a uh, one million client. Nobody loses. I think the bank will... There's, in fintech, there's always a bank, right? There's <laughs> a regulated entity. Otherwise, there's no fintech. So well, for us, we've been... Uh, you know, at Bankable, the friendliest fintech uh, to incumbents since uh, inception, uh, and we want to keep it this way. So for fintech, it's going to market quickly, but it's the same for banks. They want to demonstrate uh, speed uh, with the tools that the fintech are using and not with their, their legacy uh, technology. Um, so I think I, I, that puts the picture of embedded finance. I mean, it's, uh, clearly, I think Matt Harris is right. I think it's, his vision is materializing every day. I mean, more and more companies are... Uh, want to add additional revenue by embedded uh, finance financial solutions, and they know their customers. So it's all uh, like a, a virtuous uh, spiral that uh, yep. we have.
Good. And and so, Scott, I think Eric has lined you up for the next question. So I guess the question for you would be, why why didn't you build all of these services yourself? Why did you choose to work with with a partner for, to, to bring your service to market? Yeah, absolutely. Listen, uh, you know, to be honest with you, I think, you know, the, the why are traditional banks being drastically disrupted um, and have been drastically disrupted in the last past 10 years is probably because if you're trying to do everything, chances are you're not going to do all, everything well. Um, and, and when you look at a bank, perhaps 75% of all their investment from the tech side are made on maintaining legacy systems. Uh, legacy systems that are built in the 70s and the 80s, which is incredibly hard to maintain and simply defocuses their main value proposition, which is driving customer satisfaction. Um, and, and for us, you know, basically when you're trying to create a banking product or a payment product, there's two sides of the equation is one, what are you trying to solve for? One is, is customer experience, right? We had identified a very clear pain that, you know, financial literacy is not happening in younger generations. And we wanted to really, you know, fill that gap by offering families a uh, banking product that really solved that. And either we have the opportunity to one say, all right, so we're gonna try to recreate all the tech stack of a bank that would probably have taken us maybe 36 months if, 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 if we managed to do it, we would have probably failed 20 times trying to do it. And ultimately down the line, we would have never touched a single customer or gathered feedback. So, you know, our main DNA was, listen, what we want to do is drive customer satisfaction. Uh, we want to be very, very close to our customers. We want to understand their needs and we want to better serve them. Let the experts do the rest. Um, and down the line, I think it's just about finding the right experts at the right um, positions and really build that, that product. Because at the end of the day, uh, you know, my teenagers and my parents don't care if it's bankable or if it's X, Y, Z behind. It, it's really about driving the proper uh, solution at the right time and, you know, delivering the right customer experience and the right services at the right time. So I think the, the area of opportunity, uh, you know, guys like Eric and Bankable are, are, are driving is, is pretty phenomenal simply because it gives the opportunity to a much broader um, actors in, in fintechs to really drive satisfaction, drive customer engagement, and really answer needs where um, customers had really tremendous pain in the past. And I think it, it's a great opportunity for traditional banks, right? Because think of it that way, instead of, of maintaining legacy systems, they're gonna actually leverage solutions like Eric's or others to drive customer satisfaction. And at the end of the day, when you look at banks NPS today, that's really where um, they need to be focusing at. So, so Scott, if I, if, if I were to sort of attempt to summarize, you, you, what you're saying is it's about speed of market, it's about specialization, and it's about opening up innovation to a wider pool of, of, of companies. Quick, quick follow-up question, if I may. How, how quickly were you able to take this service to market? Because I think you said, so said it would have taken years if you tried to build everything yourself. So how long did it take building using somebody else's platform? 
I think we were pretty much up and running in four and a half months, five months. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So we obviously worked day and night uh, together with Eric's team. Uh, but, you know, from, yeah, kickoff to first uh, better customer uh, about, let's say, six months. But uh, the solution wasn't amazing, <laughs> obviously, since day one. Uh, let me get okay. that straight. Um, you know, we, we bootstrapped uh, the, the product. Um, but up and running, yeah, it, it was really, really efficient. Um, I think you had, there was a sense of urgency because you had a <laughs> thousand clients waiting for the solution. Exactly. It's sure that we were all running to uh, solve them. Yeah, yeah nothing like creating a problem, right, to, to, to move quickly. Um, Christian, I want to come to you because a lot of people sort of say, you know, banking as a service is just another name for white labeling, right? But, but it seems to me that there probably is quite a bit of difference between white labeling a banking service and building something which is much more nimble and agile. So can, can you tell us how you think about the difference between embedded banking and white labeling? Sure. Thanks a lot, Ben. So what white labeling literally is taking an existing solution end to end and simple said color coded differently, which if, if the solution is changed, you need to adapt it as well. Um, you have full dependency and they have no flexibility at all um, with the providers, how you run it with the add-ons. It's really super static. It might be a cheaper and faster way to market Yes. So where, where we see currently, for example, take, take three regional banks, all of them want to launch a pension, uh, a pension offering. And one does it in blue, the other one in red, then the third one in green. Um, the development might take them less, less long than the alignment they had to, to align on the solution. And, and in the end, it is it's just static. Hmm? So embedded finance is completely different you start with open sourcing and that's very important. So you have flexible partners um, such as Saxo on, on the banking side that can serve as well a broader expansion, for example. So an open sourcing is absolutely crucial. Um, then you have such as um, additive or bankable, the orchestration layers, the service providers in the middle that as well source your add-ons, whatever you want to add and provide to your end client. And then either you build yourself upon the APIs, which is, which is a way to do, or uh, you look into predefined um, value proposition on a predefined set, set of platform. So just to give you some examples, the, the, the first platform, and we soft launched uh, that on the wealth management side in the Nordics a couple of months, a couple of weeks ago, um, we're adding literally as we speak one, one IFA after the other. Um, and it is a, a pick and choose a solution to go into the market. So you do not have a dependency. If you want to change, um, for example, a data provider, let's talk about ESG, you want to change the provider there, do it, include it and, and run ahead. So dependency is a big, is a big topic. And if, if I might add up, to the de debate we had on embedded um, finance before, in the end, it's all of us who decide. So absolutely key is the end customer. And embedded finance means for us, we get the solution at the point where it is relevant for us. So payment, when I'm, when I'm, when I'm hungry, 
okay, I ordered something, mobility, holiday booking, or what I want to buy, I want to buy a house, and guess what, you might need indirect amortization, and all that stuff, so it, it brings more complex use cases together, not only single transitional rails, but really complex use uh, cases at the point of contact, and not may, maybe not no longer at a banking channel. So if, if, if I order a ride, I don't want to open another app to pay. It is seamless. It is super convenient. I completely agree to, to uh, what was said before. Convenience and the customer is what is driving. So all of us is what is driving embedded finance. It's a paradigm shift what we have in front of us. Fantastic. So, so again, if I summarize, you're saying like more flexibility, fewer dependencies, lower switching costs. You're able to build more complex use cases to meet the end customer needs. Two, I'm going to come to you next because I, I wanted to ask, like, what what are the conditions that have come together that have made this step change from white labeling to to embedded banking or embedding banking? Mm. I suppose technical yes. or another. So my, my vantage point is that we today cover around 150 banks. So we see a lot of these, uh, let's say, tendencies playing out. And with working with, uh, with Additive as an example, uh, we really see it up close. Uh, we have, of course, a lot of other client examples uh, as well. But, but we see this really, really playing out. And I think one of a lot has been said already by also by uh, by Eric and, and Scott in terms of uh, what are the, the drivers. So it's time to market uh, for the bank. It's the speed is a uh, low complexity compared to building stuff internally. Uh, there is of course also uh, let's say a, a scale advantage, and uh, they don't need to invest capex and also uh, you know uh, have a lot of running costs and so on. So it's it's uh, much more nimble, and you you pay as you go rather than setting aside a big team of, of developers and, and other people to, to build these services and then uh, you know, hope that it will go well at the end of the day. I think one, one th observation we haven't talked as much about is of course also that the banks now are starting to redefine themselves as uh, they have seen the successes of Amazon and others and they, they're trying to now mimic that to the extent that they are able to do that within the confinement of their business models. Um, and I've had several meetings with, uh, with CEOs and others where they start saying, well, if we can't do it uh, in a superior way ourselves, uh, you know, executing to better timelines and a lower cost than whatever we can, uh, let's say, buy or source from uh, the broader ecosystem, then we shouldn't do it, uh, which is a massive paradigm shift from just uh, three to five years ago when we came out with the API and where a lot of the banks were saying, yeah, well, that's interesting, uh, the, that API talk, but... Uh, you know, we need to control everything that uh, goes into delivering a service. Now they understand they want to be in control of, of, let's say, the last mile and what the client sees and be able to work with uh, more flexible uh, third parties to deliver that uh, user experience. But they don't need to uh, they don't need to own the plumbing to basically deliver these services. Right. So I think that's a that's a major shift. And there's a much more. Yeah, the, the trust in in uh, let's say uh, working with an e ecosystem has really grown a lot in, in the last uh, five years that I've been uh, you know a witness to this. So would you argue that the like one of the things that's made a difference is so I guess some of the tech stack is new, um, but, but what about would would you argue the other thing that's kind of changed is the maturity of the ecosystem around banking as a service? Yeah, the whole concept has of course uh, evolved a lot. Uh, but there is also just that basic uh, 
thing called margin pressure, right? That the banks are seeing, they're, they're seeing uh, margin pressure. They uh, they want to increase the non-interest uh, income, and uh, and of course they start looking at the different business lines. How can we uh, how can we scale this without adding a lot of costs? Uh, so so we have a lot of cases also where banks are coming to us. Of course they want to increase improve the let's say the client experience and and the last mile, but uh, maybe the main driver for them is also getting rid of uh, of costly let's say back office processes and uh, server costs and other things, right? So, so, so that's a part of it, of course. Um, along with what we talked about before, the competitive pressure from, from new uh, entrants and, uh, and the ability to create a whole new different way of, uh, let's say, embedded experience for the client, which uh, is very hard to do if you're siloed and working on mainframe systems and stuff like that. Fantastic. Okay, we've had our first audience question and it's uh, to you, Scott. So. Um... Uh, this is a question from Michael Sullivan, and he says, uh, love the speed at which the team have established CARD. Could Scott comment on <clears throat> the appetite of French people for new, more clear banking solutions than the old banks? Um, yeah, it's, I, I, you know, it's, it's a very good question. Um, I think the appetite for good financial services is pretty much the same uh, everywhere. I think particularly in Southern Europe or as starting in France where, you know, banking NPS has been negative, negative, negative and terrible customer experience. And I think all in all, banks have failed to address transparency to their customers, have taken margins where um, they should have and, and without being transparent. So I think Ultimately, there's, you know, since the, the subprime crisis, there's a kind of a hatred uh, for, from banks uh, in France, particularly, or traditional banks, because they failed to, uh, you know, I guess, I guess be there for their customers when, when they needed to. And ultimately, I just think, you know, people are looking for good, practical, driven UX, UI, um, banking services and i think ultimately we're, we're seeing the appetite where particularly in our market where you know if you look at the teen market for instance it, it's still a very much untapped market right less than 15 percent of of teenagers actually uh have a debit card or a credit card to their names and COVID has been obviously a, a crazy accelerator for our market. Uh, put it that way, I think we, we've probably gained three to four years in, in the acceleration to digital payments, which is already the case in Nordic countries where, you know, yeah. people paying cash, it's pretty much you're an extra, I mean, you're, you're, you're not from the world, right? Um, in France, it, it's coming up in a, a very, very high speed and ultimately, there's a serious lack where, you know, I'm 32 years old. When I was 14 years old, I could pay everything I wanted with cash. Today, it's really not the case anymore, right? Where teenagers, 50% of their spending has to be made via a digital payment. And today, they are, they're left by using cash, which doesn't serve them, or using the, credit, the, the parent's credit card, which, you know, is not practical. So we're, we're clearly seeing uh, amazing adoption towards uh, products like, like, like ours um, and ultimately towards product that serve customers in, in, in a better way than 
um, you know, than traditional banks have in, in the past. Uh, and I think it's, it's great for the consumer, it's great for the customer, it's great for uh, traditional banks as well, because they're really redefining as well their model, the way they serve customers. So ultimately, at the end of the day, we're all trying to better serve the customer. Um, and I think it's, it's, a very good, um, it's a very good way to do it. Fantastic. If I might add to that, yeah, please. Uh, we had yesterday a, a long discussion at an event uh, with a smartphone bank called Neon. It's a Swiss example. And um, not, not even looking only at the teenagers, but at the broad uh, population, they are close to reaching 100,000 clients. And just gives you an idea if, if you have the right value proposition, um, easy served to the clients, uh, providing an overview. That, that's another example. In Switzerland, completely, I would say, well-banked, if not over-banked, really well-banked. But if you reach the clients and if it's intuitive and attractive to use, not only from a pricing point of view, but the user experience, um, the market is there. I suppose a follow-up question. Do you think that in the new world of embedded banking, that you get higher adoption because you don't have to sort of switch in the way that you had to in the past. You know, you don't actually have to close down a bank account to open a new bank account. All these services are complementary and they can coexist. So does that make customer acquisition much easier? Um, anyone could take that. Maybe, maybe you, Scott, because you're kind of living this every day. Yeah, I, I am um, a firm believer that primary banking relationship wins. Um, and, and ultimately, I am, of course, in awe and very admirative of Revolut's success uh, and their ability to uh, attract millions and millions of customers. However, when you look deep down into their customer base, about 15% are actual, I would say, daily or weekly active users, i.e. they get a salary and Revolut acts as their main bank account. And I think why is because churn in the banking industry is very, very low, uh, simply because there's an incredible stickiness to uh, banks, right? And, and when we look at our case, a teenager is going to inherit from the bank of their parents at 90% of cases, right? This is how it goes. The real churn happens when you get your first mortgage, where whatever bank is uh, more generous will, you will ask you to obviously switch banks. So. Yeah. For me, the whole play is really, you know, get in there as soon as possible, which is amazing is, you know, by definition, they have never been banked in the past. So you can really, which is great is you can invent a new banking product from a blank sheet of paper and from scratch. What is hard is these kids have been growing up with incredible business models, incredible apps, where if you tell them, well, we have instant notification for payments, they're going to say, well, what else do you have, right? It's just very uncommon. So you're going to have to drive your product, your UX, your UI in a very different way than in a way Revolut has where, hey, we're just prettier and we're just much quicker and we can give you an era of, of greater products. But, you know, I very often describe Card as if, um, you know, Revolut had a baby with Snapchat in Venmo, right? That would be <laughs> we kind of think of, of the product. So... I think ultimately is, is creating a real value proposition to a customer base that is in demand and in need of a product and not a replacement kind of product. 
and I do think that you know by equipping uh, and giving teenagers their first bank account early and serving them, hopefully they will they will never leave, uh, and we will be able to continue offering great services as they grow older. Fantastic. Right, we start to get more questions through uh, from the audience, so I'm going to going to um, move us on to the next topic and then some, uh, start to work in some of these other questions. But the next topic is more around the sort of in the stack, right? The, the mechanics of embedded banking. And Christian, I'm going to come to you if you don't mind to ask you, can you, can you, can you break down that banking as a service stack for us? You know, the different players that you see within that value chain. Sure, we can look into that to kind of from the basic product to the end solution to embed it on, on, on the channel side. So clearly the first, the first layer is the supplier side, how, how we call it, um, which are the, the finance as a service providers. It can be an account, it can be an e-wallet, it can be a card, it can be an execution service. Um, that's really the base upon which it is, it is built. The, the second layer normally is, is how to run it, the operations. The operations can come from the supplier side, but it can come as well from an efficient third party, or it can as well be fully automated. So yes, if, if you talk a bit wealth management space, um, rebalancing a portfolio, this can be done by an operations provider, but also it could be done um, fully automatically with certain uh, supervision, obviously. Um, that, that's for us how we look at it the second layer and then comes the, the whole orchestration uh, layer with the sourcing part to it which brings the intelligence to it so the, the portfolio management tools um, if needed the crms um, with the data the regulated part as well on it we have more and more reporting regulated needs in particular in wealth management alongside esg but also mifid or feedlag that's the intelligence layer on, on that stack. And then we have on both sides, obviously, our APIs. And then you go into the, the front-end uh, solution. The front-end solution, that's where, and that's the beauty of it. You can really play around of what you want to build um, for your end clients. And the front-end, and that's important, is no longer only a financial company. It's wide open. It can be a search engine. It could be a obviously super app. It can be a real estate provider, um, as we've learned mortgages and all that stuff might be related to it, pension might be related. It, it can be any corporate providing financial well-being. So really, that's, that's the, the last layer, how we look at it. It's the demand side, i.e. the ones providing the solution to the end client. Fantastic. Okay, so Eric, I'm going to come to you next because you, you you sit in that chain, right? You sit between the sort of regulated service and the and the brand, right? And why would why would somebody need to use Bankable when they could go directly to the regulated, the underlying regulated license holder? You know, make make the case for for Bankable and for you know for these BAS intermediaries that are popping up all over the place. You, you're on mute, <laughs> by the way. Okay, so I'm back. Yeah, sorry. So um, no, I think the the uh, in, in fact we work with banks as well. So I think for a, a client, I think it's, it's we, we need to unlock value. So I think uh, if you look at the if you for us the stack is very simple. It's an account. So our, our system is an account management solution 
surrounded by a processor. So we own all this stack. And then we have an API orchestration layer that provides optionalities to clients to build a customized solution. Uh, so I think for, if you want to go to a bank, it's possible. Um, there, there's a, but I think it's going to, to take, uh, in most cases, uh, much longer, unless you go to Saxo, because they've been uh, you know, in this space for quite some time. Uh, but again, we, we need to, um, I think the, the, for us, it's very important to provide a service with multiple regulated entities, uh, as opposed to just one. I think uh, the, the risk appetite, if it's a very big project, the risk appetite of the bank might be, uh, you know, uh, there's different views of the same risk. Uh, so I think for, for us, we are the, the ambassador of our client to pitch, uh, you know, the, the business case to the bank. Yeah. So I think that the, you, going to the bank, we, you, you will not achieve time to market and it's, uh, you're going to go through their, their, their compliance, all that. So it's going to go to take a lot of time and the tools they, the, the bank use are not, are, are made for them actually. Uh, all the regulated bars that you'll, you'll find on the market, and there's a, more and more, the purpose of their, their stack is to serve their own regulation, right? This is it. So where the purpose of our stack is to serve multiple uh, regulated entity in multiple jurisdictions. So that's why we can address global brands or global uh, clients you want like PaySafe. We've launched, launched PaySafe in uh, 17 countries uh, and there's others uh, to come. So I think it's, uh, it's not the same. There's a lot of different uh, bass and I think the, the, the bank um, might be the right solution if you're a top 20 uh, corporate client of the bank. I think we will see that more and more. And I think, think we're in discussion with uh, very large banks to be, become their bass so they can onboard quicker corporate clients because otherwise the bank, it's a chat chat. Hey, would you like to do a banking as a service? Uh, well, okay, that's a nice chat, but the banks should stop chatting. They should start proposing pilots to their clients. Uh, and that's what we will we, see on the market now. And I think uh, when you've got uh, uh, 30 million clients, 50 million clients, that, that's a huge opportunity uh, to, uh, to address. And, and the, the bank, they're adapting. It's not something you can do. Uh, I think I've got nothing against legacy, quite frankly. That, that's what the banks have, but legacy shows history and history is good. Now to address uh, embedded finance, you can't use the systems of the, of, uh, they have. So you need to build a bank on the side to serve your, your, your multiple business cases. So I think there's a, I hope I replied to your question, uh, Ben, uh, yeah. but uh, yeah, that's my, uh, my reply. And I suppose the question is, so I don't want to position Saxo this is, you know, as any way as like a legacy bank, but you are a bank, right? And sometimes you do work with bass intermediaries. And I suppose the question is in that stack where you've got kind of the brand, somebody like Card or, you know, any consumer brand, then you've got the bass intermediary and then underneath you've got the bank. Is the bank not being kind of reduced to, to a utility? over time you know because because if you don't have any access to the customer directly you kind of you know it's difficult to have pricing power it's difficult to be able to upsell cross sell so i suppose to make the case for 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 the bank working with a bass intermediary like why yeah, would so, you do that so and not become I, some sort of dumb Saxo is a bit special in this case because we both act as uh, as the best intermediary at, uh, sometimes. Uh, with We have a lot of developers and so on. So we're a mix of a bank and a, and a tech company. But we also work as, the let's say, the custodian bank in, 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 let's say, for instance, working with Additive where they orchestrate the client experience and, and work with uh, uh, the financial institution to, to basically, yeah, 
deliver what's required there. And we work then in the back on, um, on the so-called boring things of uh, execution, custody, asset servicing, and all of that stuff that needs to happen. And of course, these things are uh, to some extent a commodity. So there's a lot of other uh, banks that could provide that. Uh, but even there, there is, of course, a lot of parameters for differentiation. So you could say, uh, like Eric talked about, uh, being able to work across uh, uh, legal, legal jurisdictions, really understanding the, the compliance uh, layer that comes now, all the regulatory changes being on, on top of that is a, is a massive in investment on our uh, side. And, uh, and of course, also something we can then leverage and, and, and help the uh, other, other providers with. So I, I think there's plenty of room for differentiation, even within um, something that is fairly commoditized, both on the reg side, but also on, in terms of the products. Uh, as you can see, many of the, the new investment models coming through, for instance, they rely on fractional services, they rely on margin and sec lending and other things to be able to basically, um, you know, bring uh, good economics into into those solutions. So, so for me, there is a lot of interesting innovation going on in that space as well. And uh, I think, uh, yeah, uh, as I mentioned uh, uh, earlier on, it is also very much a scale game. So, of course, we can see on our side, we, uh, when we started with the API, um, as of five years ago, we, we had around 15 billion of assets. Now we're around 80 billion euros of assets, right? And uh, it's, unfortunately, we haven't seen a similar rise in, in revenue. So there is, of course, a, you really need to bring scale to, to a platform like this. Fantastic. Okay, we're going to take a couple of audience questions here. So the first one is, um, can the panel share with an example what we mean by orchestration layer or what an orchestration layer might do? So... Um, I think it was Christine. I think it was you that used the term orchestration layer. So, what what do we mean by an orchestration layer? If and if we can, can we get a practical example? Well, I, I can share it certainly from a wealth management point of view, and um, guess Eric can can share it from from the cards point of view. So, from a wealth management point of view, um, it is really the system that provides you the end solution. Okay, so if you want a simple ETF savings plan robo. Um, someone in someone has to orchestrate that, has to handle these designs, has to do the link over then to um, what we explained, execution aside, has to make sure that it that it runs smoothly. Um, this is, includes as well what what we call role model, not role model um, by by different client segments. So the example that was made before by by Card. Hmm? Um, if you want to handle community features and real client features. So with card, you could take the prospect view, turn it upside down. So your today's um, clients are the teenagers and your kind of prospects um, are, are the parents. Uh, but you could run on an orchestration layer the different um, segments and make a seamless solution to the, to the end client. Um, for us, huge topic is the, the wealth transfer, the next generation, the wealth transfer. And therefore you want prospect handling, for example, and current client handling, and you want, might want different end models. So if you look into, let's say, a, a search engine, and they might have real estate on, um, and they might need an offering that helps indirect amortization um, on the mortgage side, sounds quite complex. It isn't that complex. What do you need behind? You need behind um, what Tue has described, 
uh, then you need the right the right ISINs and the right setup. And of course, you then can provide that as an embedded wells model into the end solution. And this is what is meant by orchestrating, by bringing the supply and the demand side together seamless. Yeah, Maybe yeah. Eric, you went to out to oh, add on the first side. Yeah, I think the, for us, it's. Uh, it's a technological layer to onboard an unlimited number of uh, partners. So in fact, for us, we've got, uh, we don't do everything. We do the, the accounts, the processing, the, the, the payments and, and all that, but we don't own our own card manufacturing. So we are connected to, uh, you know, Thales and uh, Idemia globally. Um, so in fact, the, the purpose of this uh, API orchestration layer is to uh, add relevant partners on a long-term basis. So. When I go see uh, Scott at Card, I can provide him optionality. Would you like this or that? Would you like this or that? So in different fields, so it goes from uh, KYC, AML, card, card manufacturing. You know, the, the list is pretty long. And I think some, of, of course, Visa, MasterCard. So some partners are global, uh, some are regional, but in fact, the majority are domestic. It's, uh, it's uh, you know, regional or, or national, yes? Because, uh, uh, of course, we always operate in a, if, it, if it's multiple countries, it's multiple times, multiple regulations. So I think it's, uh, this is what for us, it's a, a key part, part of what we, uh, we, we provide. It's to make sure we can uh, tailor a solution for, for customers based on uh, all these things we have to do. And that's how we can achieve time to market. Otherwise, there's no, otherwise we need to talk to everyone. Otherwise, you, have, you know, Scott will have to buy a puzzle. He will do it himself. He will go... Uh, uh, see uh, 20 partners, and uh, but I think it's more ambitious than building a puzzle. I think it's building something bigger uh, with real customers. And I think uh, when you have a good uh, business case, your priority is not to become yourself regulated; is to uh, to have uh, to reach a certain level of uh, you know of, of customer. Uh, it's customer satisfaction and volume, and, and it's uh, now. Uh, so it's uh, yeah. I think that, that that's what is the, uh, the, the without orchestration. We can't satisfy uh, demanding clients like uh, Card and uh, others. I think one point you raised is super is super important. It is the flexibility that is added for the for the end client. Um, on our side, it's exactly the same. So, in terms of typically investment is an ISIN, um, various on on the asset management side. The same with the data providers or the regulatory layers, there are various providers out there and we bring them together on one platform and the end client chooses. It is, it is like using a puzzle, but instead uh, the puzzle is completely white. Uh, we provide a potential that it is an end solution, a beautiful picture on top. Yeah. Scott, anything you would like to add? Because you've been talked about a lot, quite a lot there in the third person. Anything you would like to add? No, we just no, have another question for you from the audience. I, I totally agree. And I think vice versa is, you know, whenever we get the customer need, I think for us, it's really important to, you know, go to Bankable and go to Eric saying, I need this. And however, I don't have time to focus on one benchmarking, two implementation, three, I just need, I just need this to my customers. And then it's up to them to figure out, you know, which is the best provider and obviously leverage that provider given the fact that they have much more scale given they have more customers. And, you know, for, for us, it's just about not defocusing our engineering teams on the front end bits and let the experts do it on the back end bits. Um, and just being much more, much more efficient in order to, you know, accelerate time to market. 
Fantastic. So the, the next section, we're going to move into the next section, which is more um, making the business case from embedded banking. And I think it might be good to sort of focus on some some of the more interesting use cases that we're seeing. And so I'm going to take a question here from Parag, um, who, who asks, this is coming your way too, I think. I think this is best answer if you, if you kick us off here, which is, does the panel have any examples in the wholesale banking or B2B banking space where BAS has been successful? So to which, um, which kind of corporate banking um, use cases could you point to as, as working well in, in for, for embedded banking? So, so from, from my own uh, neck of the woods, I'm, uh, we service a lot of uh, um, uh, smaller hedge funds and uh, of course wealth managers and others. Uh, so, so that's where you could say uh, the whole wholesale bank is also involved. But basically where I've seen most innovation are the cases with that I think we already brought up. Of course, the likes of uh, Revolut, Robin Hood and others, uh, where we see some of these uh, mass market uh, plays that have been extremely successful. Um, and then what I'm really looking forward to see as the next step is, of course, uh, and maybe that's kind of jumping a little bit, little bit ahead in, in the discussion here, but that is, uh, we've seen a lot of uh, plays for, as we talked about early adopters, uh, younger generations, uh, waiting for the wealth transfer to happen and, and all of that and then banking on, on that, which I, I that, that play I totally get. Uh, but what I think is, is really an interesting next wave is to also see um, some of the more affluent and wealthy clients, uh, how, how, they will how they will be better serviced uh, by embedded uh, finance. And, and we are seeing some some things coming out of that, again, where you can use uh, what I talked about before with, with fractions and, and different ways to, I mean, some of the models you see playing out in the retail space will also be relevant for those, uh, let's say, um, more wealthy segments. Uh, but that's really what I'm looking forward to see. I'm also looking forward to see um, some of the models where that today are very uh, person-driven. So you, either you have a tight agent, you have a banker, advisor, whatever they're called, but how do you blend that with technology to give client, uh, you know, relevant engagement and not waiting for a call from some guy or, I mean, that blend of the client basically wanting to express their own views in terms of buying shares, stocks, whatever it is, but also having access to advice and, um, and to some discretionary services uh, when that comes into play. So, so basically some of the, of the stuff that banks and private banks are doing today uh, still has a huge need to be digitized. And uh, I think there's a lot of potential there. And uh, that's some of the stuff we work uh, with, with Additive to, to actually uh, make happen. So I think that's probably where I, am, I have, have the highest expectations. As, yep. as a bank, we are not really, uh, we're not in the space of, of doing, let's say, uh, corporate banking. So, so I, I don't have a, a lot of views on, on, on how that sector is, uh, is working. A part you of the did, sector as well. You didn't mention crypto, so I suppose the question to you or Christine is: is is, is crypto a, a big area for growth for embedded banking, or is that still a bit a bit of an edge case? Do you think in investment? Yeah, we. I mean, we are we are we are actually offering uh, cryptos, uh, but it's more as uh, I mean, so far it's been a bit more of a marketing gimmick, I would say. So there is always demand for it. But people want to able to access in the in their portfolios but it's it's a very very small percentage of, of the, the investable assets uh, right now so even though some banks are warming to it and saying okay we're like you have the goldman sachs and others uh, taking it more seriously now but it's still a fairly small part of the at least the portfolios that, that we see but of course as a 
provider or of, of uh, access to markets, we need to also have that in our in our armor. You could say. Yeah, completely agree. You need to be able to combine what is called digital assets and today's traditional assets into one portfolio. And it, it really reminds me um, the early 90s of, of, for example, structured products or when we had the debate about adding alternatives um, into a portfolio. Uh, the first are warming up, looking at a strategic asset allocation and guess what a 5% addition could be a diversifier. So I, I think it will it will start to broaden. And um, as Tua has said, you need providers that can uh, deliver both. And then Eric, uh, and Eric slash Scott, what, what's, what's kind of use, additional use cases are, are you guys seeing or thinking about within the whole payments card area? You know, what's, what, what other use cases are working super well? Well, there's uh, tons, actually. <laughs> well, <laughs> just, just, just give us a few, just because um, so no, it makes sense. Well, we can talk about. Uh, in fact, it's uh, what what we do is we. I mean, we, we, what I always say, we're, we're as good as the business case we support. Yes, yep. if, uh, an average business case, it's not going to be a great solution. But if you look at uh, Spendesk, for example, they grew in uh, multiple countries uh, from scratch. They're, they're changing the way. Uh, you know, a, a team can buy uh, or purchase a subscription or uh, a trip or whatever. So it's team finance. You know, usually you used to go to your the treasurer. So the poor treasurer, he had uh, to do a cash advance and all that. So the, that's what Vendesk yeah. is displacing is to make sure you have a, a budget for your team and your team, it's a pro an approved budget that the team can use to buy Amazon license or going to a show or all that so it's uh, in fact it's uh, what uh, you know scott said before it's uh, it's new um, in fact it's definitely very very new uh, way it's a, it's a very powerful niche basically so um so i think on the i mean we've had success as well with uh, deutsche bank uh, <laughs> uh, we've, we've done a corporate product completely outsourced with them uh, in the past a, a corporate prepaid product that was sold to uh, airbus emirates and, uh, and others so i think there is a I mean, B2B uh, is, is the majority of what we do uh, is, is B2B, uh, except, I mean, card is probably uh, uh, an exception. I think, you know, Paysafe as well is B2C, but, uh, uh, but otherwise B2B, that's where we focused initially because there's a, it's predictable, you know, where with a B2C, it's not, yeah? So uh, you don't know. So, you, you know, card, you never know if the, their customer are going to buy uh, an iTunes, uh, uh, per month, or they are going to buy a, mo a motorcycle, you know, whatever, so a bike. So, uh, so that, that's the, that's that's why we're on B two B. So I think the the successes on B two B are. I mean, there's a. I mean, I don't know what else I can list, but uh, we are, you know, with Emirates, we're in 160 airports uh, doing uh, real time cash disbursement. So that that's uh, that's something they could not do with their bank. Uh, so it's something that we could do with the bank. So there's a lot of together with the bank that we, we can enable. It's not that I've never liked this story about uh, fintech. We're better than banks. Uh, banks, they, they, are, they are losers. We're winners. That's completely stupid. Uh, there's no fintech without, without banks. And why not complement each other? You know, what's the logic? You know, what's the business logic? There's no business logic. It's just like ego. Yeah, so there's, we have no place for ego at, uh, at Bankable. It's not good for business. Um, so we're going to move on to the to the final topic, right? Which is um, 
what creates differentiation, right? And so, so I'm going to take this from multiple uh, vantage points, if I can. So I'm going to start with um, you two, and I'm going to ask you, so when you work with a BAS intermediary, how discerning are you about who that partner is? And what are you looking for when you look for a BAS intermediary? So when, so when we think from the sort of supply side up, what, what do you look for in a BAS intermediary? So I, I almost want to just uh, quote uh, my good uh, colleague Eric on this call because <laughs> it's a, I mean, even the best solution without the right business plan is not really uh, going to go anywhere, right? So, so I, I think reflecting on uh, the six years we've had a, a, let's say, a full API solution in the market, uh, we've worked with maybe, uh, let's say, 50 different uh, entities on API solutions. And we've been in talks with probably uh, tenfold that number. And from the outset, we had uh, we were so keen to get our APIs in the market and, and have them tested and so on. So, uh, I mean, if there were two guys in a garage rocking up with a cool app, we would just start, uh, you know, integrating it day, day one. And uh, and now, of course, we've we learned pretty soon that um, one thing is having a great UI or a smashing idea, but if you don't, if it's not backed up by, let's say, access to a client franchise of some sort or ability to, you know, go viral in in some way, then um, it, it 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 was very hard for these uh, some of these early uh, players to to really uh, uh, you know have a sustained business, and, and and quite a few of them went out of business or got uh, bought, which was their kind of other option so that means that we we realize we're we're not in uh we're not uh let's say in private equity trying to pick pick the win winners if we if we were super good at that then we shouldn't be doing uh, banking and and uh, bass and other things then yep. we should just be uh <laughs> investing in our own fund and making fortunes out of that so so again we've we are looking much more at at some of the established players uh, who have uh, these client, the client franchises at their disposal, and who are now looking to to see how can we offer more relevant contextual and so on uh, services to our clients, and uh, and that's of course where the, what we talked about before with the orchestration layer comes into play. So I think that the, the agenda for us has has changed uh, quite dramatically. So, but we still have a lot of discussions with uh, with newer banks and uh, and others of course uh, but we also each uh, i would say each week uh, i think i turn down uh, some robo that wants to do something for a a niche segment of um, whatever white men above 50 who uh, likes to play chess uh, they would like to have their own little uh, investment circle and then they would bring an app out and that's like okay that even though i'm a white man around 50 uh, it's not really i don't think there's a market for that so <laughs> So this, yeah. yeah. So so again, we've been a lot more uh, discerning than than we used to be in the past. Um, yeah. Fantastic. And uh, same question to you, Scott. So so when you were looking for a bass partner, um, what sorts of criteria were you taking into account? Was it you know was it the breadth of services that that partner could give you access to? Was it geographical coverage? You know, what sorts of things were important to you when you chose a a bass provider? Yeah, for us, the first thing was the quality of the tech stack, um, by far the main driver. Um, you know, ultimately, due diligence kind of the tech stack gives you answers to a couple of, 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 of questions, of answers. And the first is uh, ability, the quality of the team to implement new products at a very, very efficient uh, rate. Um, so that was definitely the the, the, the first and main um, and main driver. Second uh, was 
yeah, obviously their array, their array of products are offered solution. And lastly, you know, I, I think it, it, to go back to, I don't remember exactly who said it, but the distinction between the licensing and the technology for us was a no-brainer, um, simply because I, I don't, I don't think the two fit together. I think um, either you're trying to be a technology company or you're trying to be a bank. Um, and for us, it was it was very important to partner with a tech company uh, for the reason that I just mentioned. Um, and then lastly was um, international, the ability to go really, really fast, really quickly in other countries. Obviously for a very young startup, an ambitious startup, it, it was one of our, our main drivers. Great, so, so can, can we infer from that that, that Card is coming to, to other countries? Uh, fingers crossed. <laughs> Fantastic. Okay, good. Right, you heard it here first. So, and then Christine, you're, you're head of strategy at Additive. You know, when, with your strategy hat on, what are you thinking of in terms of how you're going to build increasing differentiation for Additive versus whatever the competitive landscape looks like for, for in, investment management as a service? I don't know if I've lost you, Ben, briefly. But just so when, when you think about additive and the competitive environment, how do you think that you'll create uh, more and more differentiation over time? What sorts of things are you, are you thinking about beyond the tech stack, the breadth of products, the international coverage, if, if, if anything else? In the end, it is um, who you can serve as, not as end clients, but as your clients. And... One of the main differentiations, what we see, we're in the wealth management embedded wealth space. Um, we can bring financial planning to any employer out there for its, his, his, her employees. So it's really opening up the way the services are provided, the channels the services are provided. And if I might add to, to one of the, the discussions before, um, in, in the past, on the wealth management side, uh, various tried to cooperate with the banks, but then it was rather captive, i.e. if you get the execution and the custody, um, please as well get our, our views and please get as well our products. Um, that's, that's opening up completely. So you can, you can source in terms of the investment products, in terms of the end solution, um, anything, literally anything you like. So differentiation on the wealth management side will be with the end clients uh, to be served as said. So corporates, um, search engines, retailers, but as well as what you serve there. And there's an important point is the aggregation. And like on the card side, we want to know what we have spent. The same on, on, on the wealth management side. Today, we have to, to build it um, to get a quite cumbersome um, we want to know how our pension looks like to be able simply to simulate it from a mortgage um, amortization and over into long-term planning. And I think these this servicings are, are coming our way and provided through channels that um, do not need to be traditional channels, but it can be partially obviously provided by, by financial companies. But it's, it was said fintechs and banks always go hand in hand and I completely subscribe to that. It is opening up new ways of distribution, serving all of us best, i.e. the end clients. Fantastic. Uh, Eric, anything you would add in terms of when you look at your 
competitors where you seek or see areas of differentiation? So, as you find in the report that uh, Aperture has produced, there's... A oh, I was going to plug that at the end. You beat me to it. <laughs> but anyway, yes, I think for us, it's clearly, um, it, it's, well, clearly there's one thing we need to do right now. We need to plug, uh, connect our platform to as many banks as we can uh, in different countries. Why? Because uh, we are now meeting clients who they want to start. And that's what we've done with Paysafe. They're in a, a dozens of countries. They want to open new countries. So instead of um, being uh, led by the client, we could push, in fact, our network to a client saying, listen, we are now opening Brazil. Are you interested? You know, like Scott, if I come to Scott, we, we, are, we are live with uh, IBAN accounts, cards, everything in, uh, in 20 countries. Why don't you raise 50 million to address that? Why, why don't you get marketing budget? The world has changed. I think uh, the, the 20 years ago to build an international company, it was much more difficult. Uh, now you've got uh, you know, a lot of tools and, uh, and I think we want to facilitate uh, uh, the, this network of uh, you know, global bus for global clients, either fintech, corporates, or even banks. Actually, there are some banks who are overpaying services in, outside their native country. Uh, so it's, uh, the, in fact, for us, one agenda is to change the way correspondent bank is, uh, is, uh, is set up. So if, in fact, if we are, you know, with uh, an account in all these banks to power, um, you know, uh, uh, corporates, uh, then we've got something powerful for the bank as well as for the, the flow, the premium flow we could bring to the bank. Fantastic. Okay, right. So I think, uh, sadly, I think we're we're out of time. But that was. Um, I just want to thank the four of you for what I thought was a really, you know, wide-ranging and interesting discussion. And probably, um, I'm going to conclude with something you said, Eric, which is, I think, embedded banking is really about giving every company the possibility to be a fintech company, which I think is um was a pretty pithy comment from you right at the start. And um, I can't resist Eric already mentioned it, but we. We just published a report about um, the embedded banking market in which we evaluated 45 uh, banking as a service providers and both bankable and additive were are considered by us to be best in class as transformers capable of, of um, transforming both business models and technology, the companies that they work with. So um, we were lucky to have uh, the, both the two companies on this discussion or part of this panel and thank you also to um to and to you scott for your insights and we have more questions that we didn't have time to ask but that's sadly always the case and hopefully you guys will agree to come on another four by four in the future so um last thing to do is thank everybody for attending thank you for your questions and um we'll make the replay of this available if you want to uh, watch it again or share it with any of your colleagues but thanks very much for everybody for participation and your attendance at this uh, discussion much much appreciated and see you at the next uh, 4 by 4 Thanks. Thanks, Ben. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye.